Welcome to Visiting Professors. This is medical oncologist Dr. Neil Love. We asked clinical investigator Dr. Mitch Smith to visit the practice of Dr. Lyle Feinstein in Pembroke Pines, Florida, and afterwards I debriefed both physicians about this experience. To begin, Dr. Feinstein discussed a patient with mantle cell lymphoma. The patient is a 67-year-old man with a history of nephrolithiasis who presented to the emergency room in March of 2010 with left-sided flank pain radiating to the groin. A non-contrast CT of the abdomen demonstrated diffuse and bulky retroperitoneal adenopathy with diffuse periportal and peripancreatic adenopathy measuring up to 3 centimeters in size. Further imaging that day demonstrated bilateral axillary adenopathy. Patient underwent a CT-guided lymph node biopsy the following day, and pathology was consistent with mantle cell lymphoma. Bone marrow aspiration and biopsy subsequently demonstrated a small population of CD5-positive, CD23-negative B cells by flow cytometry consistent with mantle cell lymphoma The patient saw me in consultation, and the decision was made to initiate treatment with rituximab and bendamustine. After two cycles of rituximab and bendamustine, a CT PET scan demonstrated an excellent response to therapy with no evidence of adenopathy or hypermetabolic disease. In an effort to optimally cite or reduce the patient, bortezomib was added to the patient's regimen of rituximab and bendamustine. He completed his fourth cycle of triple drug therapy for a total of six cycles of chemotherapy in September 2010. The decision was then made to pursue high-dose chemotherapy and autologous stem cell rescue. Pre-transplant evaluation confirmed a molecular remission. Dedicated CT scans as well as a CT PET scan demonstrated no identifiable disease and bone marrow was negative both morphologically as well as by PCR for IGH gene rearrangements. The patient received a stem cell infusion December 3rd, 2010. On his day 100 evaluation, the patient maintained a complete molecular remission. My Question for Dr. Smith is, what is the role of maintenance rituximab after autologous hematopoietic cell transplant for mantle cell lymphoma? So, Mitch, what did you see today with this man? So this guy looks great. He's very happy. He got through his treatment well and happy to be in remission. And it's pretty remarkable how he tolerated the treatment. He did have some neuropathy, he said, during the bortezomib treatment, but that seemed to resolve fairly quickly. Looking back on the decision that was made in terms of the bendamustine rituximab and then adding in the bortezomib, and we're all among friends here, so you can just speak candidly. Does that strategy even fit into the NCCN guidelines? You're part of that, right? Right. So, you know, I think there's data definitely supporting rituximab bendamustine as an excellent choice. The initial treatment of mantle cell lymphoma, no one agrees on but rituximab bendamustine certainly makes sense. The addition of bortezomib, there's really no data on efficacy. There's data that you can do it with a number of regimens, 
There's rituximab, bendamustine, bortezomib regimen. There's two studies where it was added and was tolerable, although with some neuropathy. However, when you look at those studies, there's actually an accompanying editorial to the second one, which commented they were both really negative studies. They did not meet their predetermined phase one, two endpoint of efficacy. So it's not clear that bortezomib adds anything. That being said, there's an intergroup trial which should be opening by the end of the year in mantle cell lymphoma, which is going to ask this question, rituximab bendamustine as the base and adding bortezomib to see if it's efficacious. Now that's going to be in patients who are non-transplant eligible, correct? These are patients non-transplant eligible over the age of 60. And then what about in the transplant eligible? Right. So there's another intergroup study for the patients under 65 who are considered transplant eligible. And that's going to look at rituximab hypercevad versus rituximab bendamustine followed by stem cell transplant. And again, this patient, the same thing, you know, rituximab bendamustine followed by high-dose chemotherapy with stem cell support, there's not a lot of data there. We're extrapolating from RCHOP followed by stem cell transplant where that clearly prolongs PFS. So the idea is, well, whatever you do to get the patient in remission, probably consolidating with stem cell transplant makes sense. So just out of curiosity, if this patient had come to you for a second opinion at the very beginning, and he said, my doctor in Florida says I should take BR, and maybe he's going to add in bortezomib, would you have said, well, that's not what I would do, but it's okay? Would you say that is what I would do? What would you say? I would say it's not what I would do, but it's okay. There's rationale. I would think in this age group, I definitely give rituximab bendamustine. And then if they tolerate it well, then you have to face the decision about what's the risk of a stem cell transplant with the idea that it probably prolongs remission. It definitely prolongs remission after RCHOP, presumably after any chemotherapy, or do you wait and assume that they're going to recur and consider your options later. So this is certainly a reasonable treatment plan, but the data are pretty solid for rituximab bendamustine, pretty solid for stem cell transplant after chemotherapy-induced remission not so solid for the addition of bortezomib. Well, what's your take on the most common induction treatment for mantle cell in the community right now? I think most patients in this community are likely to receive the r hypercevad regimen if they're physically capable of handling it. It's a difficult regimen to tolerate, and many specialists, particularly those at MD Anderson, would suggest that if you can make it through a course of the r hypercevad regimen, you don't necessarily need a transplant. It's my personal opinion that an autologous transplant is less toxic than the r hypercevad regimen. And if the goal is to induce the deepest remission then we should look for ways to do that with the least toxicity. And my thinking was to combine three drugs which have demonstrated activity in the treatment of mantle cell lymphoma to initially achieve a response and then to consolidate the patient with an autologous transplant as opposed to just moving forward with the R-hypercevad regimen. What's this patient's lifestyle like? Well, he was working when I initially saw him. He was finishing up his 40th year as a teacher. And he actually wanted, when he presented to me, he had about three more months left before he was going to retire after 40 years of teaching. And it was important for him to keep working for those remaining three months. And it was during that time that we were able to get two cycles of rituximab and bendamustine into him. And at that point, after he retired and he had taken care of everything that he needed to do, the decision was made to intensify his regimen with the addition of bortezomib, 
He had an excellent response to treatment. We moved forward with transplant, and he actually feels great. He has taken up golf. He spends now a lot of his time playing golf and has an excellent quality of life. So in terms of this question about our maintenance, there was actually some data presented recently. Maybe you could comment on and talk a little bit about where we are with that in mantle cell. So it's interesting. Rituximab in mantle cell has never been the magic that it is in follicular lymphoma. Even the rituximab chemo versus chemo data was pretty soft, and there was very little rituximab maintenance data. The European group presented at Lugano, and we'll be updating at ASH, a randomized trial of RCHOP versus FCR, and then randomized responders to maintenance rituximab or maintenance interferon, which is something the Europeans do a lot, would be the interferon. And the FCR arm was clearly inferior to the RCHOP arm. But the interesting part was in the RCHOP arm, rituximab maintenance was clearly better than interferon maintenance. Now, we want to see some update of that trial because when you look at the numbers, only responders went on to the maintenance, and so the thought was the RCHOP followed by R maintenance arm had a disease-free of on the order of four, four and a half years. But the question is, were some of those selected patients for only responders? And so there's some issues we'd like to see. But it's clearly supporting rituximab maintenance in mantle cell as it's supported in follicular lymphoma in terms of progression-free survival. And so the new older patient trial, everyone will get rituximab maintenance, and then it'll be a randomization to rituximab alone or rituximab plus lenalidomide. And what's the maintenance plan for the transplant protocol? Well, the last time I saw that, there was no maintenance because there's not really any data post-stem cell transplant. But again, that's an open question, and it wouldn't shock me if that gets changed in the protocol development process. Now, considering this man's situation, and you can't argue with the response he's had. You mean, you may argue with the rationale or whatever, but certainly the results are there. What were your thoughts about our maintenance? So I, would, I do want to say that I don't argue with the rationale of how he was treated. I just want to say there's certain things we have data and certain things we don't. Yeah, it doesn't no, mean we shouldn't sure. do it. And clearly he's done well. And again, in the absence of data, as we were talking about this with the patient's room this morning, it's like one of the goals when you do a stem cell transplant is to get a disease-free interval where the patient can not be on treatment and sort of forget about medical care. And now if you're going to put them on every two-month rituximab maintenance, you've sort of taken some of that benefit away and so does quality of life issues. So I think it's a reasonable thing to consider. It depends on lifestyle and, you know, is every two months going to be a problem? Does he really want to go away and forget about it, hopefully for a few years? In the absence of data, you can justify either proceeding with maintenance or not, and that's an individual discussion with the patient. And Mitch, if he got treated, had this great response and said, you know, I think I'm going to hold off on getting a transplant, what would you have done in terms of maintenance? A year ago, I probably would not have recommended maintenance, but now with the data that's out there, I would certainly have that discussion and probably would favor maintenance You know, after chemotherapy without a stem cell transplant. Now, you mentioned that the ECOG study is going to look at adding in lenalidomide as maintenance. Of course, that's been a very successful strategy in myeloma. What's the background to why this question is being asked in the trial? So lenalidomide clearly has activity in mantle cell lymphoma. It's a little harder to add to regimens such as RCHOP because it is somewhat myelosuppressive. So it may be better as a maintenance strategy as in the myeloma case. And in addition, there is preclinical data that suggests that lenalidomide and rituximab will have a positive interaction in terms of 
enhancing the immune synapse and immune effects that would enhance rituximab activity. So not going to say anything about the microenvironment. Well, you know, they show that cytolytamide and how many ways it can work, which shows we don't know how it works. But so there's enough data and clearly, you know, clinical activity in refractory lymphoma that there's an interest in this disease, which is currently incurable to throw in most of these novel agents in a way that we think we can get the drug in for a period of time. Any other comments about this patient, Mitch? So he had an interesting, he had a cousin who two years before seemed, uh, according to them, had mantle cell lymphoma also, really? which is quite fascinating wow. because we don't think of it as a familial disease, but that gave them a little more insight into the disease and also the fact that the cousin didn't get a stem cell transplant and he did and, you know, the issues hmm. is sort of interesting.